It has been too long since I've been here. I think so. Uh, I'm just going to have a relaxed time of sitting with you. Do you have anything higher? All right. I want to be able to see over the pulpit. I had a little uh, issue, had to get a knee replaced, and they thought they would help me by straightening out my slightly bowed leg, which caused my foot to fall differently, which messed up all the bones in my feet. They said a knee replacement. They told me, they said, this is the worst pain you will ever feel in your life. I said, they're lying. It was way worse than that. (laughs) But the foot was even worse uh, that they created. But there's a message in it. But I don't have time to tell you. (laughs) We... uh, But we really need gifts of healing to go to a new level. And we really need somebody with a gift to heal old age. I'm waiting for that one to come. I bet a bunch of us are. But uh, I tell you, I have been having the time of my life. Last few months, I've gotten some of the biggest, I think the greatest, most... uh, the, the best prophetic downloads I've ever gotten. It's all been about Jesus. You know, and honestly, I was sitting one day and, you know, pondering the apostolic gospel where it says they preached Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. That was their message. And, uh, and I was just saying, Lord, I need some new material. I need some more material. I've tried to preach you from everywhere I've seen you in the, the scriptures from beginning to end and everything. I said, but uh, I just need some new material. And I got about a one-minute download that I felt like was great. I said, Lord, if you'd given me this when I was 10 years old, my life would not have been long enough to process it. It's way too much. And he said, this is a part of the eternal gospel, which it speaks of in Revelation, which I'd always thought of we would be so, you know, and and should be so constantly in awe of what he did at the cross of the basic gospel. We would just be recounting it forever. And uh, even though I think we will be honoring him for that forever, there is an unfolding revelation of who Jesus is. And this is what we've got to, to, to see, to know, to walk in. But I think it's going to be forever. And uh, see if I can get this to come up. All right. So we're going to infinity and beyond. Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> okay. And, uh, <clears throat> but... Anyway, about a week later, not a week later, it's about two days later, in the same week, I was sitting out on our porch and a little sparrow landed right in front of me and I was just thanking the Lord for this sparrow and how he loves the sparrows. And, and when something like that happens, anything in nature gets real close, I always pray for them. You know, we're, we're their boss. 
We were given dominion over the earth. And, uh, but anyway, it resulted in another download of a revelation of how much the whole creation loves him and wants to worship him. And why it's even groaning and travailing for us to get right. You know, become the sons and daughters of God we're called to be. But then I've just been getting more and more. And uh, so I'm trying to process it and write it and get it down. But you know, the, there's a theological principle of first mention. I think I've talked about it before here. The first time something is mentioned in scripture, it's normally a, a great or profound revelation of its purpose. And the first place in scripture that it's mentioned that God had a house, which we're his house now. First place in scripture it's mentioned that God had a house is where Jacob had his dream and saw the ladder reaching into heaven. So I think the most basic purpose of the house of God is to be a place of access to heaven. The gateway to heaven. And uh, that's what we've got to become. But he saw the messengers of God, and that's the same word for messenger that sometimes translated angels. But I think in this case he's talking about his messengers, his human messengers, were ascending and then descending. And I think that's our purpose. We ascend into the heavens, to the heavenly realm, and then we descend back to the earth, bringing evidence of heaven's reality. And heaven's authority over everything on the earth. Over all conditions over the earth, over everything. And this is what he wants us to walk in. And then we see in the gospel that Jesus is Jacob's ladder. We told Nathaniel when he said, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel was so amazed. He said, you're amazed at that. You're going to see greater things than this. You're going to see the messengers of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So the way we ascend is the progressive revelation of who Jesus is. When he said in Hebrews 6.1, when they're laying out the basic Christian doctrines, and he talks about going on, moving on beyond the elementary teachings of the Christ, he didn't mean we go beyond the teachings of Christ. We go beyond the elementary teachings of the Christ and go on to the more advanced teachings of him. It is all about Jesus. It says in you know, Ephesians 1, and we see really in other places where all things are going to be summed up in Christ. He is the ultimate purpose of the creation. Everything is going to be summed up in him. And the ultimate purpose for every one of us is that our lives are summed up in him. Amen. We're conformed to his image. We're changed by beholding his glory. We're changed into that same image from glory to glory. So this is the year I think we're going to see the house of God start taking the definition that it's called to have. Now I'm thankful for church, church movements, and all that we've had up until now. Thankful for those who fought and paid such a price for the advance of the gospel and for us to be able to walk in things today 
and not have to constantly reinvent the wheel, but just kind of take over where they left off and go a little bit further. And, uh, but I think we're coming to the point now where the house is really going to take its definition. And I don't think, this is my opinion, but I don't think we're even close to what we're supposed to be. I think at best, maybe the greatest church in the world today is maybe 10% of what we're called to be. I remember one time, you know Harry Bazell up here on the hill. I remember one time this guy came back from a conference and, and Harry said, hey, how was that conference? He goes, well, it was about 10% God. Harry goes, good night. I knew I should have gone to that conference. I've never seen that much of God in anything. <laughs> I've never seen that much of <laughs> And uh, now I'm thankful for the 10%. And to me, that's an encouraging thing because look at the upside. What's going to happen? What is the church going to be like that becomes 20% of what it's called to be? You know, it is uh, truly remarkable where we are. And I think the, you know, even though the Reformation and things that have led to the church to this period, it's been 500 years and we've only got maybe 10%. Well, the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. He can do the other 90% in 10 years. In two years, he could do it in a day. A day with the Lord is a thousand years. He can do in you in one day what you think would take decades and decades. But I think it takes our hunger, our devotion, our pursuit of him. We seek him. If we seek him, we will find him. If we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. And so I'm looking for an increasing hunger. And that was the main result in me of those revelations I had in that one week. I had, I got an insatiable hunger for the Lord. And guess what? It is contagious. You're going to catch some of it today. You're going to become infected and you're just, you know, all, you know, we're coming to a time where the pursuit of God is going to dominate all of our thinking. How do we get closer? How do we see him better? How do we know him better? How do we uh, walk in his ways? How, I mean, just this. Uh, hunger for him. There's nothing more desirable in the universe than him. There's nothing more interesting. There is no greater adventure than the true Christian life. There is nothing more boring than religion. We've got to avoid one and stay in the great adventure. And if your Christian life is not a great adventure, somehow you've gotten off the path. You have missed a turn somewhere. Because there is no greater adventure than the true Christian life. So, you know, as C.S. Lewis said, if you, you know, if you get on the wrong road, it'll never turn into the right road. If we got off on the wrong road, we've got to do one thing, turn around and get back on the right road. Go back to where we missed the turn and get back on the right road. And that right road, you know, how could anyone who knows the almighty God 
and I'd be passionately on fire for him. How could anybody be lukewarm? How could, that, how could anybody be lukewarm about Almighty God? Now, it's religion that makes us lukewarm. Human, you know, religion is man's attempt to, to, to uh, really become a, approved or acceptable to God. Where we think it's, you know, somehow it's based on the things we do. You know, and, um, but the true walk with the Lord, we don't do what we do in order to become approved by him. We do what we do from a position of being approved by him. You know, and uh, it's not a matter of works. It's a matter of life. It's a matter of spirit. It's a, a matter of the great adventure. And he knew us before the foundation of the world. So what he's called us to be, every one of us individually, is the true ultimate desire of our heart that he put in us. Living waters flow from the innermost being. If those living waters aren't flowing from us, somehow we're, they've been stopped up. The wells have been stopped up. And they need unstopping. You know, if that well of living waters is flowing... You can sit in the most boring meeting and be having a feast. Because it's flowing within you. And it's going to flow to others. It's going to touch others. It's going to draw them in. So I just want to talk about a couple of things. I think we're really coming into seriously exciting times. I think 2018, we're going to see revivals breaking out. True, authentic revivals which I think all revivals in church history have been about 1% to 2% of the work of God. At best. We love them. <laughs> They're exciting. But most revivals only last, at best, a month or two. Rare has there been a revival that lasted a year or more. Now, there have been some. They've been great. But rare is that, that's not their purpose. You know, they give you a shot in the arm, get you going. But what we're supposed to be walking in day by day is supposed to be a whole lot better than revival. Now, I love revival. I love these. You can get addicted to them. But as Vance Havner, one of the greatest revivals of all time said, he said, revival is not the main work. He said, revival is like the... the huge, great sale down at the department store that gets everybody's attention and excitement and buying. He said, but that's not the main business of that store. Its main business is the daily merchandising of its things. And the same is true of the church. We can't be like the cripples sitting by the pool of water waiting for someone to come stir the waters when the king himself is right next to us. We don't have to wait for the waters to get stirred. We need to go stir some waters. Be used for that. And, uh, but I think when there's an awakening, which is very different from a, a, a revival. Awakenings are very different. Revivals tend to get spawned by awakenings. And in my opinion, there have only been two great awakenings. And then two good awakenings. 
but didn't quite measure up to what I would call a great awakening. The first one set the spiritual genetic code of our country. And uh, the second one reset it when it had gotten off some. And, uh, but both of them resulted in great wars. One of them really resulted in the Revolutionary War. The next one made the Civil War inevitable. Now, I'm not saying it has to be that way. I think the wars were a result of us taking what God was offering us away to deal with ultimate issues without the wars, but they got, I think, commandeered and steered in such a way wars became inevitable. Maybe we should learn those lessons and not have to go through another war. But it, they came during times like this when it seems like there's such division in the land. And, uh, but I get excited about that. That's evidence. But awakenings don't tend to last a few weeks or a month or two. Awakenings lasted decades. The, both of the great awakenings. You could argue one of them lasted 50 years. And you know when one of them started, what started the American Revolution? It was a preacher, George Whitfield when he got kicked out of the churches of England and no church would allow him to speak in their churches anymore. I think it was 1820, I mean 1728 or uh, in that period, he said, okay, I'll, I'll preach outside. And he went to a part of England where there were no churches into the coal mining areas, region. They didn't have any churches Almost all of them were coal miners involved in the coal mining. They were the lowest, considered the lowest people in the UK. They considered themselves so low that God did not even care enough for them to send them the gospel. That's how they thought of themselves. Whitfield went to them, stood up on a tombstone, and started preaching. And he said to them, you are the royal priesthood. You are, if you come to Christ and you're born again in Christ, you are of a higher royalty than the royal family there in Buckingham Palace. And they believed him. It took Whitfield several years to understand what this message meant. And then he brought it to America. You know, his, his meetings in America, they said 80% of all of the colonists personally heard Whitfield speak during those days, preach, 80%. He had crowds, Benjamin Franklin measured, he couldn't believe his voice could carry that far and also he, when Whitfield came to Philadelphia, Benjamin Franklin measured the crowd and the distance that his voice could be understood and estimated there were more than 20,000 people in the crowd. All of his crowds were 20 to 30,000. And uh, when it, and he could be heard to the back of the crowd and perfectly understood. And you know what? He, he created, when people heard that he was coming to a city and he was going to speak in a city, for a hundred, hundred miles or more all around, he created stampedes. 
They were racing. There were wagons and horses and everybody galloping and racing because nobody wanted to be late to the meeting. But you know what? These were heathen. They didn't even know what they were going to hear. And they were going to get saved. But you ought to read about all that. But it all came, it all began in the whole philosophy of government that God is over man and man is over government, not the other way around, not government over men, began with Whitfields telling them, you're the royal priesthood. If you're under Christ, you're over governments. Your intercession should dictate what goes on in governments. And, and all of that, that's what created this whole idea of what the U.S. became. I don't want to get into that. That was all free, by the way. That's not a part of my message. But God's going to do it again. I think you're going to see the heathen getting speeding tickets racing to get to revival meetings. Okay, we're going to have, it's going to be so mind-boggling, wait and see what God does again. If that were the beginning, if that was the seed, what's the harvest going to look like? Okay, so these are my, you know, the three questions I took from the U.S. Army manual that was, these were the three questions Colonel Moore, uh, I suppose if you ever saw the movie, We Were Soldiers Once. Uh, it was a true story. He almost got court-martialed because during the heat of the battle, every, when they were debriefing the troops that were in the battle, they said Colonel Moore was sleeping. He was leaning up against a termite mound, sleeping. So they called him in. They were going to court-martial him for sleeping <laughs> during the most intense time of the battle. He was the commander of the battle, the U.S. forces. In. And he said, I wasn't sleeping. I was trying to answer three questions. I was trying to tune out all of the clamor of the battle so I could answer these three questions. And they said, what questions? And he said, what is happening, what is not happening, and what can we do about it? And now that's in the U.S. Army manual, uh, manual is anytime you're in a crisis, a battle, whatever, these are the three important questions to answer. You want to know what's happening, you want to know who's attacking you with what, because you've got to counter it. You, don't, you also want to know what's happening, because all kinds of rumors are flying everywhere, and you need to determine what's true and what's not, so you're not fighting or shifting your, your resources to fight something that isn't there. So you need to know that, but then what resources do we have to deal with this? I think these are the three questions we should always use in these Crisis too, okay, except we could refine them a little bit. What's happening? What's not happening? Why is the Lord letting this happen? What are we supposed to do in this? What's he trying to accomplish and what are we supposed to do? He always leads us in his triumph. So we know one basic thing, we're going to win this thing. That's a settled issue. Okay, but how? You know, what are we to do? Okay, so I think we need to look at our times. Okay. One thing, there's no limit how close anyone in this room can be to God. You know, anyone in this room could be God's best friend. People will ask me, well, you think you're going to be one of those 144,000? I said, heck no, I'm going to be one of those two witnesses. I'm not going to fall to that lower 
<laughs> you know, that's a long <laughs> So there's room for one more of you. Okay, who's it going to be? <clears throat> but there is no limit on any of us. That place that John had, leaning his head on his breast, that is available for every one of us every day. You could be his best friend. Where does it say in scripture, you can't do what Enoch did? Get so close to God, he just takes you. You know, there's, there's no limit on any of us. It's how bad do we want it? Everybody wants it, but who wants it bad enough to really seek him, pursue him? Maybe stop watching some of the TV we're watching. Spend that time seeking him, praying, reading, studying. You'll be amazed at how much a little sacrifice in your life will pay dividends. Pretty soon you turn off the TV entirely because you don't have time for that. You're so hungry for it. What he wants, but you don't have to do that all alone. Don't, don't do it under the persuasion of a religious spirit. Some of you are called to pray two hours a day. Don't try to do that. That your calling, your destiny, start with five minutes. Commit to the Lord, you will pray five minutes a day. I'm serious, and you know what's going to happen. You're going to start loving prayer, and pretty soon you're going to be praying 10 minutes a day, then 20 minutes a day, and then you're going to be looking for more time to pray. You'll get up earlier. You love prayer so much, and pretty soon two hours isn't enough for you. But it's not something you're doing out of guilt and pressure, and it's something you're doing out of love. You start to love prayer. You know, any job is doable if broken down into small enough steps. So you don't have to get, you know, you're not going to be his best friend or as close to him as John or somebody else tomorrow. Who knows? I don't know. Day with him a day is a thousand years. Maybe so, but, but let's just take steps. Be intentional. Those who fail to plan, plan to fail. Set a plan. I really believe New Year's resolutions. I write one down every year, and then I measure myself by it all year but I make them attainable. And then what is the next step? What do I need to do next and make it attainable? Okay, Revelation 4, there's a door standing open in heaven and a voice saying, come up here. Nowhere in scriptures does it say that door closed. It's open right now to whoever wants to go in. We can be those who enter the heavenly realm, I believe every day and bring back to the earth absolute evidence of heaven and heaven's authority over the earth. Okay? But what was the first question asked by the two first followers of Jesus? What was it? Where do you stay? You know, the Lord will bless a lot of things he won't dwell in. And I think it's time we mature beyond just seeking the blessings. Thank God for the blessings. I want more of them. I'm not saying we don't want the blessings of God. But there's a point where we mature beyond just seeking the blessings of the Lord. And we want the Lord himself. We want his presence. And um, I think that's essential for maturity. And uh, where we're not satisfied just because the Lord's really blessing our church. 
We want more than that. We've had a few tastes. We've had a few visitations of the Lord. And, uh, you know, when he came, I, you know, there was no doubt about it. One of the greatest I was ever a part of, when the literal visible glory of the Lord appeared in a meeting, and we all hit the decks. It's like instantly everybody in the room, on their faces, on the floor. And I remember thinking, the floor is not low enough. And I sat there for hours. I didn't know if we'd been there for minutes or hours. It was so intense. I sat there for hours trying not to think a single thought. Because I was so afraid I would think something unclean and just go up and smoke. I mean, that's how intense and that's how awesome the fear of the Lord was. It wasn't until many years later, Julie, my wife, was with me. It wasn't until years later when she told me she didn't see the glory of the Lord that day. But you know why she didn't see it? She was so afraid to open her eyes. And uh, listen, when that kind of thing happens, <laughs> you know, you're ruined. And the Lord told us that day. This is supposed to be normal church life. This is normal. What you have is not normal. In Revelation 3.20, the Lord stands at the door of his own church knocking to get in. Are we letting him in? Do we hear his knock? Well, it's not here, it's not. He said those who hear his voice open to him. And to me, the blessings is not evidence that God is there. Now, he's always there. He's always with us in a way. But there's a difference in the way the Lord is with us and abides in us and his manifest presence. We're after the manifest presence of the Lord. We've had a few times in Charlotte when the intense presence of the Lord came. Visitations. You may have heard of the time we had big raindrops coming in during the service. You could see it on the video. People, it was hitting people and they were getting wet. It wasn't raining outside. It was sunshine. Nothing was leaking. And uh, we've had stuff like that. And I love it. But those are still visitations. But it lasted. It was so intense. We've had times when Federal Express delivery people would walk in the building and like their knees would start knocking. What's that I feel in here? And uh, we felt the same way. You, you just tiptoe through. You feel this holy, awesome presence of the Lord. That's normal church life. And, you know, that's going to be the most powerful evangelistic force in the world. Revivals all total maybe bring in 1% or 2% of Christians. All total in history. We've done this. We've tested it and... We did it used for about 10 years. We did it in almost every conference. We'd ask people, how many of you came to the Lord through a crusade? How many came through a revival? How many came through Christian television? It would, at best, it seemed to me, be about 2%. Some groups, it'd be 5%. Everybody else met the Lord through the witness of, of a friend or relative. Everybody else. At least 95%. So the most powerful evangelistic force in the world is an encouraged church. It's on fire with 
fire for God. We've kept our first love. We've kept that fire. And you know what? It's our responsibility to keep it. The Lord lit the fire on the altars, in both the tabernacle of Moses and the temple of Solomon. He lit the fire from his presence. Then he told the priest to keep the fire going. Don't ever let this fire go out. So he lights the fires. There's something that touched us, ignited us, to get us to come here on Sunday morning. But it's up to us to keep it going. Keep the wood on the fire. Okay. Like it or not, I think Donald Trump is a sign. I like the guy. But I do believe Lance Walnow's prophecy that the 45th president would be like Cyrus of Isaiah 45. And uh, I think he is. He's a sign. Now, in my opinion, the guy is more like probably what the disciples of Jesus were like than most of us would like to admit. They were all Donald Trump's. They were the edgiest, crazy people out there. I'm not saying our president is the edgiest, craziest, but he's edgy. And, uh, you know, the, uh, but my point is, uh, there's some remarkable parallels. Maybe some of you've studied them, been some words out about it. Truly incredible parallels. What's happened in our country to what happened under Ahab and Jezebel, and the timelines of, you know, Jezebel's whole point was to lead Israel into immorality and the worship of idols and how the, this has happened in our country. We've caught, fallen to the ultimate depravity that we see in Isaiah 5 that a nation can fall to where we start calling good evil and evil good, honoring the dishonorable and dishonoring the honorable man. We've, fall, we've fallen about as far as you can fall as a nation in just a few decades, those decades line up exactly. It is truly amazing thing how they line up with the periods of time that Ahab, Jezebel, Joram, and all perverted Israel. And, and you know, in that prophecy, somebody's coming who's going to put an end to that, destroy that Jezebel. And I think it's destroyed the Jezebel spirit over our country, and be a Jehu. And you read about the character of Jehu, okay, that's Donald Trump, I'm just saying. <laughs> you know, he was a wild chariot driver. They could see him, know who he was for a long way off just the way he drove his chariot. So, uh, but the exciting thing to me, okay, I think our country I think we've been given grace, we've been given mercy, I think we're going to see the train back on the tracks. Nobody, I mean the economic recovery alone, we haven't seen anything like this. In such a short period of time, we've never seen anything like this. I mean it is getting, and it is just starting to get traction in some areas. And uh, if you followed some of the, the prophecies like, uh, I forget the guy I met him, the fireman from down in Florida. Mark Taylor, who got back in 2011 about Trump becoming president, one of the things, one of the reasons God was going to put him in was so that our national resources would not continue to be stolen from us. 
by the nations. God, and the reason is God has a purpose for our resources. If we're getting going to be wealthy again, we're already have the most powerful economic engine in the world again by a long shot. It's not just so we can raise our standard of living, it's so we can raise our standard of giving. God has a plan for this. Okay, a big plan. We need to get it lined up with this plan. But anyway, we've got a wild chariot driver at the helm. Now, I like that. I, you know, I've said for many years, I'd rather die of almost anything than boredom. This isn't going to be a boring ride. I don't care. And the Lord also told me, I went up and met with him, and he said he's going to be like the Apostle Peter. You're going to say one day, blessed are you, this is straight from God. And you're going to say the next day, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> He's going to be that way through his whole time. You're going to really love what he does and then really hate some of the stuff he does. I'm just saying, that's the way Peter was. But to me, the real thing, if he is Cyrus, remember the Lord had Isaiah prophesy about Cyrus hundreds of years before he came. Many think Daniel was the one who showed Cyrus his own name written in the prophecies. That it was Daniel the prophet. And there's, you know, good reason. But if Cyrus is the one, the main thing Cyrus did, to me the most important, he was the one who mandated that the temple of God in Jerusalem be rebuilt. And he, he, he put out a call throughout the empire for all the Jews whose hearts moved them to return to rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. Then he gave safe passage to them and he gave letters for his own resources and the Lebanese forest and everything else to be used for that. And he had Israel take up an offering from everybody throughout the empire for those who wanted to contribute to it. Okay, I'm just saying, I think this is a parallel. I think it is a spiritual parallel. I think you're going to see a remnant arise again and say, we've got to finish the temple of God. This is the most important thing in the earth. We've got to see him have a place to dwell. And guess what? We are that place. You are that place. And it's not just that he dwells among us and we have a manifest presence of the Lord in the meetings. We're not, this meeting isn't the church. You're the church 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Every one of us are supposed to carry his manifest presence. Guess what? We're here for that. He's got us here for a reason. I don't know of a better one. I can't think of a better reason to be alive. Well, anyway, you can read about all this in Ezra, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. And this is one of the first things he did. Do you realize all the things that our president has done to take the yokes off of the church and for us to be able to get on with our business? And um, friends of mine pray with him every day. Do you know, a lot of people don't know this. You know how one of his campaign managers, Manafort, you remember who that was? He got fired. It's never been in the media why he was fired. They've said some things, reasons, but nobody knew the real reason. He had intercessors who prayed for him every single day. 
And he went three or four days and he didn't see him. So he started asking, where are my intercessors? And he was told Manafort wouldn't let him come to pray with him anymore. He went straight to Manafort, fired him on the spot. He said, nobody's going to keep these people from praying for me again. And this goes on every day now. I mean, this guy is almost addicted to prayer. And he sees like a Pentecostal, he raises I mean, he just, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and something's really rubbing off on him, believe it or not. But anyway, this is, read this in Ezra, the great proclamation that Cyrus put out, you know, the proclamation throughout all his kingdom. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is Judah. He's saying this is why God gave me all this authority. This is why God put me here to get this job done. Then he says, whoever there is among you of all his people, may his, peop may his God be with him. Let him go to Jerusalem, Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, I think our house is laid desolate. I don't think we're even close to seeing the house of the Lord be what it is. And listen, we've got to go way beyond just having gatherings like this. And there are a lot of other things we can talk about and discuss. The main thing, whose hearts stir them? And listen, I know I hear people all the time say, I quit going to church because it was boring. I got injured there, got wounded there. So who hasn't been wounded at the church? I mean, good night. Um, <clears throat> but to be a part of that remnant says, I don't care. There's a higher purpose here. I'm not going to let anything drive me away to my assigned purpose. And, uh, these are the heads of fathers' households, I believe, who just said, we're going to stay. We're going to get this job done. But anyway, God said about Cyrus, Isaiah 45, the other prophets, that he was raising him up for two reasons, for the sake of Jacob and Israel. Do you, you ever see those distinctions? In, sometimes in the same sentence, the Lord said, I'm doing this for the sake of my people, Jacob and Israel. It's like he's making a distinction. Now, I was, I think there is. I think Jacob are the Jews who've not returned to their land. I'm just saying, I've got basis for this. But Israel has returned to their inheritance and they're rebuilding their land. I was just in Jerusalem a couple of months ago. Uh, I tell you, when I stood on the Mount of Olives, first time I'd been there, looked down Jerusalem, I had one big thought. This is why we need a new one. Yeah. I love Jerusalem. It's kind of a mess, you know. I mean, that you got, well, it's just a mess. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's conflict constantly. But, and I love I've got so many friends there. I spent some time with friends there. They've been given their lives to serve in Jerusalem. I appreciate them so much, but my hope is not in that Jerusalem. I want to honor them, support them, be a part of that everywhere I can, but we really need to see the new Jerusalem. That's where our, our 
our vision is supposed to be. And um, think of this. Abraham, the first sojourner, you know, he was obviously a member of the aristocracy of one of the great cultures and nations of the time, the Chaldeans. That's where the seven wonders of the world were, were and obviously a very wealthy man. He left all of that to wander in place. He didn't even know where he was going because he had a vision of a city. A city that God is building, not men. And I think every true sojourner, true sojourner, which I think very few Christians are, many are just trying to keep their fire insurance current. But they don't have a vision. They haven't seen the city. But true sojourners, they see something that God is building that is way beyond anything man could build. And they're doing everything to be a part of that city. Now, the, uh, <clears throat> think of this. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it said, lived in tents. They were so wealthy, they could have, I mean, they made kings jealous. They could have built probably some of the nicest palaces in the world at that time. They said, we're not interested in it. A tent is fine. Because here they had no lasting city. They weren't living for what they could get in this life. They had a bigger vision. They were doing everything. They wanted to stay flexible, mobile, able to move quickly, whatever. But it wasn't about what they got here. They were living for it. I tell you, those who see that city, anything man could build, the greatest palaces, greatest homes, everything else, is going to be pitiful. When you, we've seen the king, who are any presidents? You just can't be impressed with people like that. You honor them for the sake, we give honor to whom honors do, but you're not going to be overwhelmed. What is the White House? I tell you, the White House is trivial compared to God's house. And um, again, we give honor and we give thanks for that. I thank the Lord for the blessings and everything else. But we've got to have some. We've got to have a vision higher than that, and uh, we've got to see the Lord's house restored. But anyway, these are the reasons God raised up Cyrus for the sake of Jacob and Israel. I think our move, moving our embassy back to the Jerusalem, major important issue. It's going to be major blessings to America. Then it says that men might know that he is the only true God. I'm looking for things under this man's administration. May not have anything to do with anything he does. But we're going to, the Lord raised him up so that he could be known as the only true God. And then for the restoration of his temple that was lying desolate. I tell you, it's time to build the temple. And we talked about, you know, his first two followers of Jesus. Lord, where do you dwell? Not just where do you bless. Not just where do you visit. Where do you dwell? Where's that place that you dwell? He will bless many things he won't inhabit. Now, I would encourage you to read Ezra, who was a part of the remnant, 
talks a lot about, you know, what was done there. There's so many. I think Ezra and Haggai are two of the most important, timely uh, scriptures that we could read, that we could understand right now. They're speaking exactly into our times and purposes. And one of them, thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says to me, the time has not come, the time that the Lord, Lord's house should be built. These were the guys who returned for that reason. They got so off track, they said, well, it's not time. A little bit of discouragement sidetracked them, so they said it must not be the Lord. And are we going to allow the heathen to dictate what we do? Are we going to allow our circumstances to dictate what we do? Are we going to allow what they write about us, what they say about us, anything else? Or do we have a higher authority determining what we do? Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, It is time for you. He said, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much, but bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You close yourselves, but your no one is warm. He who earns wages earns wages to put in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains. Guess what? You're pretty close to them. You don't have to go as far as we do. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but it came to little. And he goes on. He says, therefore, the heavens have withheld their due and the earth withheld, withholds its fruit. For I call, he called a drought on the land and all this. And, and you know, most droughts are from the Lord. And you know, everywhere in scripture that it talks about rain after the uh, flood, it is a blessing from God. How many of you got up and thanked Lord for your blessing today? It is a blessing. Rain is always a blessing. Too much of it didn't. You know, or may not be. Maybe it is. Maybe it just washes away what needs to get washed away. But listen, there are things that are happening. We've got to discern there. You know, the Lord really is the one in authority here. And he's given us his authority. And things are not going to happen on earth if we don't pray. This is the heavens of the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he's given into the hands of the sons of men, which is why he won't do things on the earth until we pray. He knows what we need better than we do. But he still won't do it until we pray. He said, I gave you that authority. You've got to ask me. Just consider this. How would our families, our churches, our communities, maybe even our country, how different would they be if just our vain imaginings were turned into intercession? He was talking about pornography. Suppose all the time spending junk like that, driving us further from the Lord, what would happen if that time were spent in intercession? How about our vain imaginations where we go through whole days 
sometimes, not even thinking about the Lord. When he was right there beside us all day, he's in us. Paul said, don't you understand? You're the temple. He's in you. And we didn't even acknowledge him. The Lord promised the glory of the latter house would be greater than the former. And somebody's going to walk in that, and he's got us here. What do we have better to do? And, uh, you know, we have to come back to the earth. Sometimes we have to be engaged in things that are going on here and speak to them. And, uh, but I tell you, the main thing that's going on, I think right now, a remnant is getting their vision awakened again. They're going to see the job done. Now, if you've ever been in a place of the manifest presence of the Lord, you are ruined. You just can't settle for anything less than that again. And uh, the um, resolve to see his bride made ready. We see that that bride is that city. The end of Revelation. And uh, he says, let me show you. And, uh, you know, it was the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven. And it was the bride. And it goes on, you read the next few verses there, it's clear, this is his church. We don't look like, does, do we look like something right now that the nation should just be streaming to? How are we going to get there from here? I think they're simple steps, but they're resolute. We've got to be resolute about them. We've got to determine, I'm not going to deviate from this again. It will be the main purpose of my life, to be who God called me to be, and to help others, help his bride make herself ready for the king. Now, one thing... I think for generations, we've been building on Ecclesia. You know what Ecclesia is? It's the Greek word that is often translated church that really speaks of the structure, the organization, the government of the church. There's another word used for church in scripture. It's called koinonia. You heard of that? It's literally in the Greek kinonia, but in the south, it's koinonia. That's right. That's what I tell those Greeks all the time. We in the south have perfected language. <laughs> but <clears throat> the uh, but koinonia or kinonia is a bonding together so close that the only way we can be separated is death. Now, this is the word used for fellowship and communion in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. And you know, that is the only place in Scripture where it tells us why many are weak or sick, why Christians get sick, or die prematurely, not having koinonia. 
not discerning the Lord's body. Doesn't say it's not for not having ecclesia. And I think one of the big mistakes we made is putting ecclesia in front of koinonia. We're called to be a family first, not an organization. If we ever lose the family we're called to be, we're no longer his church. You can have perfect ecclesia, and not, if you don't have koinonia, his president, he's not going to be there. Okay? Uh, when he said in 1 John 1, 7, where it says, If we dwell in the light as he is in the light, we have koinonia. That's the word translated fellowship there. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He didn't say if we dwell in the light as he is in the light, we have ecclesia. Do you realize, I mean, if you've read all the books written about the church and church we're supposed to be, to me it seems that 95% is about ecclesia. I don't even know if you hardly ever read about the koinonia. Now, I, I think the early church apostles, they did not add ecclesia until there was koinonia. To me, that's putting the cart in front of the horse. They would come lead a bunch of people to the Lord, leave them. Something happened. But they start bonding together. They come back in six months. They're bonding together. Then they add a little bit of ecclesia. Just a little. Just, all, just what they need. Because it's all about being a family first. It's all about relationships. Now listen, this is tough. This is really hard. Because when there were just two brothers on the whole earth, they couldn't get along. People have trouble getting along. That's what I do in my marriage counseling. I've got a real simple but honest marriage counseling. God has called you into this relationship. It was ordained in heaven for him to kill you both. <laughs> and you are so stupid right now because of all the endorphins going off and everything. You're an idiot. And you're going to go through with this and you're going to die. Because you cannot survive in that relationship until you learn to die daily. I'm just saying. I think that's a more honest marriage counseling than most people get. It's a good killing. It's worth it. But you're going to die. Okay? We have trouble getting along. We are not going to be his temple till we learn to do that. And you know when, when we learn to get along? After you've been hurt. After you've been offended. And you press beyond that. You don't let that deviate. You don't let that cut you off from your relationships. Cut you off from your purpose and where God has called you to be. If you don't have a vision that, where you understand that these are opportunities to grow in love and grow in patience and grow in all of these things and seize those opportunities. You'll never be an overcomer and you will not be a part of the great thing God is doing now. And listen, that many are, listen, many are not even going to be allowed into the wedding feast because they don't have the right clothes on. I'm just saying, isn't that scripture? And being invited to the wedding feast is great, but that's not as great as being the bride. 
That's not as good as being the bride. And there is a high calling. Listen, Paul the Apostle, I think I mentioned this the last time I was here, about near the end of his life, if you ever read the chronological Bible, where the books of the Bible were laid out in their chronological order when they were written, you know Paul started out one of his first epistles saying, I'm not inferior to the most eminent apostles which is basically saying, I'm one of the greatest. Six years later, he writes another letter, and he says, I'm the least of the apostles. Then a few, five to six years later, he writes another one. He says, I'm the least of the saints. And then in one of his last letters, he says, I'm the greatest of sinners. Do you see a progression there? And... Uh, he also says, one of his last letters, he says one of the most incredible things to me written in the scriptures when he said, I don't think I've yet attained, but I press on. He wasn't talking about salvation. He wasn't talking about eternal life. Listen, most Christians, let's face it, that's the limit of their vision. Paul wasn't, he got salvation, he had eternal life the day he believed. So do all of us. But there is so much more to our reason for being here than that. That's settled. That's done. But he saw a calling so high that here maybe I think one of the greatest apostles of all time, greatest missionaries of all time, one of the greatest saints of all time, who saw himself accurately, I think, according to his humility, Still says near the end of his life, I don't think I've yet attained, but I press on towards this mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. This one thing I do, that's what he says. He's going for that. There is a high calling of God in Christ. When you see it, you, you just can't see anything else after that. And it's really bigger than just us attaining to the high calling. It's really having that vision to be everything he created us to be so he gets the reward for his sacrifice. So we can walk in the power and authority that he wants to give to his people to walk in to accomplish his purposes. But Paul, near the end of his life, he said, this is what I'm going for. The mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now, I think we may not have seen it, may have drifted from the path for 40 years. You can get back on the path and make up that time really fast. But it's got to be intentional. It's called repentance. It's called turning from the things that have been distractions and all the ways that we've sought to build our own houses instead of his house. And these things that are going to pass away, even, the, even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who did not even have the Bible, had a bigger vision than that. They had a greater vision than that. Are we going to walk in that? This could be the one place on planet Earth that the Lord likes to come to the most. This could be it. I submit to you, we've got to do some things really differently. 
I personally don't think we can have koinonia looking at the backs of each other's heads every week. We'll loan you some tables. Those really work. We have them in Charlotte and people come, they start coming in early, they start bonding, they start We give them time to process the message afterwards, have interchange about it. Talk about how are you going to apply this to your life? What are you going to do? What difference is this going to make? But I tell you, that comes from each other. And, and we do it in some other way. I think there are things like that. I think, you know, the Lord, you know, he commanded more feasting than fasting. There's something about these meals that we really need to put a high priority on. And uh, there's something about, I think, small groups. You can't have koinonia with more than but a few people. I want to finish with this thought. You know, back in the early 90s, like 1990 and 91, uh, Francis Frangipan, Mike Bickle, and I were going around to different cities we, we've thought helping, seeking to bring unity to the church because there's so many things that can only be done when we come into unity. And the Lord had shown us some things about that. So we would not even go to a city unless a, a high percentage of all the churches would come together for the meetings and co-sponsor the meetings and work together and have a follow-up plan and all this. Well, we went all over the place, stirred up a lot of things, and it was just a few years ago, 2015, the Lord had me look back on that. And he said, where's the fruit from all that? Where are all the churches in unity now? I had to admit, none of them. He said, you've misunderstood one thing. He said, when I said, where there are just two or three gathered, there I will be in the midst of them. You thought that meant if there are just two or three, the Lord will come. He said, you don't understand. If there are more than that, I'm not coming. He said, if you want to see unity in those cities, you should have called one, maybe two churches together. Three at the absolute most. And build on that. Then it was small enough for them to connect. And the Lord will be seen in their midst. And then later, as that koinonia is formed there, then you can add other churches. But it's not going to knock the same where it just becomes an organization instead of a family. And I submit to you, you know, uh, I know when I went through the Marine Corps infantry training, the first thing they did, they set us up in what were called fire teams. We were three-man teams. And then so many fire teams made a squad, made a platoon, made a company, you know, things like that. But we, you're three, you were, you were bonded together. And then you bonded with the other, you know, you learned to bond with the others in the squad and, and, um, you know, built on that. And I just submit to you, I think we need both the big meetings. There's something you can do in big meetings you can't do in small. But I tell you, we, what we've really got to build on are the small gatherings. Prayer meetings, fire teams, where there's some people have, you're going to have intercession to go after one stronghold in the city. Could be two or three of you, but you bond together in that. You go out every week and you pray and you, you know, whatever, something happens. Then pretty soon you, 
start linking together with a fire, another fire team when you, and take on something bigger. But listen, church is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This is supposed to be a place where we gather for strategy and everything else, but I tell you, we have got to have the vision of building on Koinonia first, on these relationships. And listen, if it's all having to be mandated here, I question whether the king is really the head of that church. He's got to be the head. We need authority. We need those who can help direct and lead and things like that. But if he's not the head, if he's not the one orchestrating, it's way beyond anything we can orchestrate if it's going to be him. <coughs> Little bit of koinonia starts here. And this is my position now. I've been in churches all over the world, virtually every major denomination, movement. I've only seen a couple of places where I think they're starting, just starting to touch on Koinonia. That's my opinion. I would say the same about our church in Charlotte. We're seeing the first steps in a few areas. I've never seen it in a whole church. I'll tell you what you would see. You'd see the manifest presence of the Lord. When we're bonded together and going in there, he comes. But I tell you, little, one little group, two or three people praying together, it will be contagious and pretty soon it's spreading to everybody else, everybody else. Once you taste koinonia, you've got to have it. You become like a junkie for your next fix. You can't live without those relationships. And guess what? The Lord created us that way. What was the first thing he said wasn't good? Loneliness. Guess what? Man had God when he said that. The Lord was saying, I created man so that I was not enough. And I know that's heresy to a lot of people. It's scripture. He created us that way. He, we got to have him first and foremost. And he's got to stay our first love. No doubt about that. Nothing else works without that. But he also made us to have to have one another or we wouldn't keep getting married and killing each other like this. Isn't that true? It's a divine trap. But what about... Place okay. Then when we're in that relationship, we can't get away. We got to do this. We got to die. We got. We've got to do that in church too. We've got to steam our church relationship. If this is where you're supposed to be, where you got to say nothing is going to drive me from this place. The Lord can, with the revelation from heaven, can lead me somewhere else, but I will not be driven away by problems, by issues, by boring sermons or anything else. I'm here. We're, we're knit together. But listen, I ask you to consider all the ways that we can build on really small groups and watch the fire burn. You take one spark, a little heat, you start putting a bunch together. Put one match, it's got a little flame, but you start putting a bunch together. And when that burning starts taking place, that fire, we come together, it's going to be a mighty flame. And you'll see the flames on this building. I believe you're going to see that. I believe people are going to see that. 
they're going to think there's a forest fire down here because of the flames they see. We've, we've had that experience a few times. We've had firemen come bursting through doors like this, saying, where's the fire? And we're going, what are you talking about? <clears throat> they saw flames on the building. Lord, I ask for all these hungry people who come together in this day like this, obviously in pursuit of you. Lord, ask you to be the head of this church. I ask you to build right here a place that you can't wait to get to. Whenever we gather, the most important thing is will you come, not whether the people come. Lord, we ask you to build your house here, build your dwelling place here. And Lord, we, I ask you, give every one of these hungry people that vision of your city so that they would have the same resolve as the patriarchs. It's not about this life. It's not about anything we can have here. We've got a bigger vision. We want to be a part of what God is building, not just what men could build. Bring forth your dwelling place here in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, it's great to be back with you. I'm sorry I've got to run. I'm in the middle of a little family gathering we have to have, and they're about to all split up and depart. But uh, Lord willing, you'll be seeing more of me. Again soon, I say that every time, and it it goes on. But listen, it's not important for me to come. It's important for your king to come. And for you to see him, you to bring him into every one of these gatherings. Thank you, David and Shirley, for all you're doing up here. Thank you, every one of you, for all you're doing. Let's get on with the job. Finish that temple. See you tonight. Praise the Lord.